Let's all stand and open our Bibles, if you have them, to Luke, the 16th chapter, please. Luke chapter 16. We're going to read the first 13 verses. Now, this is Jesus. He's, he's talking to his disciples. That's the audience in this setting. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe the master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth... Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's pray. Father, this morning let us hear your word. Lord, your son Christ Jesus has has given this parable, this story to his disciples, and he explains it to them. And I pray that now, Lord, we can receive these same words. They're going to speak to us. Let us know the message that you communicated to your son through these words. Let us understand that. Let us apply it to our lives, each one of us personally, Lord. Today, we want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is one of those teachings of Jesus that appear to be difficult to understand on the surface. Now, the point is clear enough. Be generous and responsible with your resources. But how the point is made can be a bit confusing to us today. It's a story of a manager or steward who worked for another man, probably a landowner. It wasn't uncommon for well-off, well-to-do landowners to hire managers to manage their estates. Now, in this particular instance, the manager was guilty of squandering his boss's possessions. The version of Scripture we just read says the manager was accused of wasting his possessions. This is from a Greek word, diakopizo, which literally means to scatter When Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, if you remember the story, the prodigal son asked for his share of his father's inheritance, went off to another land, and it said he squandered all of that. Same word here that Jesus is using in this story. 
Now, in our story, it doesn't explicitly say the manager was stealing, but it says he was squandering someone else's possessions. And when you squander someone else's possessions, especially when you are being paid to manage them, it's considered a a pretty serious offense. Now, instead of charging the manager with the crime, what his boss did was he called him in and basically said, you're fired. Get all the accounts together before you leave. Now, this guy had no other employable skill except being a manager. He wasn't strong enough for manual labor. He was too proud to beg. So, being a skilled manager, he decided to put his skills to work to try to come up with a plan to find favor with other people who perhaps might hire him when he was unemployed. He called in two of his boss's debtors to go over their accounts. And and based on the size of the debts that these two individuals owed, we can assume that these were probably very well-off people themselves, probably renters who were renting property from this landowner, from the, the master, in exchange for a fixed share of the harvest. Now, that's kind of like modern-day farm leases. You know, a farmer will lease land at X number of dollars per acre and pay it in cash. Now, the difference is, in this case, the tenants were not paying in cash. They were paying in produce from the harvest, and and as such, they probably didn't owe that amount until the harvest came in. The first renter owed 900 gallons of olive oil. And the manager said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. So he told him to cut his debt, his bill, to the landowner in half. The second renter owed 1,000 bushels of wheat. And he told him, change it to 800. He cut his debt by, by 20%. To give you an idea of the size of these transactions, 900 gallons of olive oil is about the yield of 150 trees. Think about that. It's a lot of olive oil. And 1,000 bushels of wheat back then, at, at that time, was the yield of about 100 acres. And when you look at these two transactions, it seems at first glance as if they weren't equal because this first guy that came in, I mean, you think, boy, he must have caught him in a good mood. He cut his bill in half, right? And the second guy came in, he only cut it by 20%. But here's the deal. Because these are different types of produce and they have different values, it's believed that, you know, the, the 450 gallons of oil and the, the, the 200 bushels of wheat probably were worth the same amount of money. So that brings a little sense to this story. It makes a little more sense. It was worth about the same amount. And it appears that that amount was 500 denarii or denarii. At that time, a denarius, one denarius, was considered one day's wages, just for skilled labor. So, so think of that as 500 days wages is what that was. And if you think that back then they had six-day work weeks, this was, this was around a year and a half's worth of wages. These transactions may have been worth, in modern currency, $30,000 or more each. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to just wipe off the books. How could the manager do that? Just wipe them off the books. Well, 
perhaps it was his discretion to charge whatever he wanted because remember he was hired by a landowner to manage his account so he probably had some discretion himself on setting fees for the renters some people um, believe that maybe what he cut out was his commission maybe that's what he did kind of like a fire sale right he cuts his commission out to, to try to get a new job. But, but there's no way to really know that. I mean, it's, it's speculation, really. But think about this. In the process of endearing himself to these two debtors, he also makes his boss appear to be a great, generous benefactor because he does his job in his boss's name. So, he makes friends with the two debtors, he makes his boss look good. Win-win, right? I don't know. That's difficult to say. And you know, that's where the difficulty comes in understanding this parable. Jesus said the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, ostensibly, when, when, when the manager went in, I guess for, for now we call it our exit interview, right? He goes in for his exit interview and presented the books. That's probably when the master saw this. That's when the master realized what had happened. But even though he commended him, he still called him dishonest or unrighteous is another interpretation of that word. So let's be clear. There was nothing in this guy's actions that should make us honor him. In fact... In this story, think about this. This kind of occurred to me as I was studying. We never see him repent for what he had done, do we? He never repents in this story. What happened? He got caught. That's what happened. He got caught, and then he had to figure out a way to get himself out of the mess that he had made for himself. No, Jesus, Jesus doesn't admire this manager, but he does point out some things that are very important. The moral of this tale, if you will. And this is what he says. These are the last few ver verses that we just read. He says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now remember, he's talking to his disciples here. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So you've, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I want to look at this passage. I want to go through what Jesus has to say about this by asking three questions. The first one is, what is mammon? See, the, the title of my message, the title of my message today is Breaking the Spirit of Mammon. And that's a strange word. And unless you're used to reading the King James Version of the Bible. You, you, you're probably unfamiliar with it. In the verses above that we just read where Jesus is explaining the story, 
where you see the word money, the word that Jesus actually used was mammon. And mammon comes from an Aramaic word that means riches or possessions. Mammon's only found in the Bible four times. In the entire Bible, is found four times. We just read three of them, right? And the fourth one is in Matthew's account when Jesus makes this same statement, you can't serve both God and money. That's the fourth one. So Jesus went out of his way to use a peculiar word here. The Bible and, and the New Testament speaks a lot about money and riches and possessions and things. But it never uses this word. Jesus used this word for a reason. He had to have. Now, first of all, the word mammon carries with it the connotation that it is money used in a worldly or unrighteous way. That's what Jesus calls mammon in this passage. In fact, some, like, like if you go back to King James, some translations call it unrighteous mammon. In this passage that we read, it, this version, it, it called it worldly money. There is apparently some difference between worldly unrighteous mammon and heavenly righteous money. Mammon seems to incorporate all the improper uses, the wrong motives, and the evil influence of money. Now, mammon is also treated kind of like a personification of the unrighteous aspects of money. My sermon title, back again to what I'm preaching on today, Breaking the Spirit of Mammon, talks about the, a, a spirit of mammon. And I want to be very clear that nowhere in the Bible does it say that mammon is an actual living entity. Mammon is not like God. Mammon is not like the Holy Spirit, not like Satan, not like an archangel. Mammon is not a demon. The spirit of man, mammon is the tendencies, the principles, and the influences of mammon that are, in, that are alive in our world today. It's the religion of mammon, the religion of money, if you will. Look again at verse 13, Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon. Jesus states that mammon is something that can be served. In fact, in fact, this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus contrasts serving God with serving something else or someone else. And again, mammon is inanimate. This is not a demon or something. But still, we can fall under the spell of mammon and we can spend our lives serving it as a master. And the reason you can't serve both God and mammon is that in so many areas, the two are diametrically opposed to each other. Consider these things. Mammon makes us think that more money will fix all our problems. God, on the other hand, is the answer to all of our problems. Mammon promises identity. Who am I? Well, my money makes me who I am. Security. Got enough money, I'm going to be safe. Significance, happiness, joy. Only God, however, can truly provide all of these. 
Mammon tells you that you need money to help other people. On the other hand, God can and does help people without it. He doesn't need it. Mammon leaves you dissatisfied with what you have and, and, and always wanting more. Whereas God gives us contentment and peace, and he can do it in any circumstance. Mammon believes that the most valuable things in life are money, possessions, things. God tells you there are true riches that transcend the material world. Mammon basically tells you that everything in life revolves around money. In reality, everything revolves around God. Yeah. Mammon cannot deliver on its promises. God is the only one who can provide everything we need. The only one. Let's go to my second question. Is money evil? That's an easy one. No. No, money is not evil. Mammon is called unrighteous, not because money is inherently evil, but because of all the unrighteous attitudes the pursuit of money can produce. If money were inherently unrighteous, then all uses of it would likewise be evil, right? And we do not see that anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere do we see that. Here's what Paul wrote to a young Timothy. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 11. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, he's talking to Timothy, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. You see, the love of money is, is the root of all kinds of evil. And being eager for money can lead you away from God and to lead to grief. Money is evil when it brings out distorted values in people, and it can do it. Money can do it. Pursuing money can make people selfish, leading them to take advantage of others, to treat other people as, as, as simply objects and to be unfaithful to God. And it tends to reflect an excessive attachment to the world. And remember, we are called to be in the world, not of the world. But money has this allure, and it draws us to being attached to the things of the world. A particularly ugly side of being eager for money is that it can lead to jealousy, anger, and even hatred poor towards people who have more money than we have. Yeah? I mean, instead of looking at a person as a brother or sister in Christ, we, we view them as people that have been unfairly blessed by God more than we have. How come God didn't give us what he gave them? We get angry. We get jealous. Or we think the opposite. We think, well, they surely have compromised their faith to be so rich. they got to be really sinful, right? Somehow beyond God's grace. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, right? Surely they have to be sinful. These are the kind of things we think when our thinking is distorted. And the other side is also true. 
those who have a lot of money and they place a high priority on it, they, 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 they rely on it in their lives, they can think that they're better or smarter or more godly than anyone else because of their wealth. They may feel they are obviously smarter than other people or they wouldn't be so rich, right? Or they think that clearly they are pleasing God or he wouldn't have blessed them so much financially. We get all these thoughts in our mind and money drives us. The, the pursuit of money drives us to think these things. And here's, here's probably the most troubling aspect. The eagerness for money can cost people their salvation. In, in, in that scripture we just read, Paul says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Think about that. Is money really worth losing your salvation over? Or the question Jesus asked was, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? All of these symptoms that I've just talked about come from the love of money, come from an eagerness to attain money and an out-of-balance view of money in our lives. So let me go to the third question. What then should I do with my money? Luke 16, verse 9. This is Jesus talking about this parable he had just told his disciples. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Consider what Jesus had to say about this story. You should be generous with your worldly resources, mammon, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Money cannot come with us to heaven. Can't. One of my favorite song lyrics is this. You spend your whole life just piling it up there. You got stacks and stacks and stacks. Then Gabriel comes, taps you on your shoulder, but you don't see no hearses with luggage racks. It's not going with you, folks. It's staying here. Money's value is limited when it comes to everlasting life. So recognize its limits. Use it for others. Don't use it for yourselves. To gain friends by means of mammon is to use money in such a way that others appreciate you for your exercise of stewardship, your kindness, your generosity. Take unrighteous mammon and redeem it. Yeah. That's what we need to do. How do you do that? Well, let's start with this. First, Give what belongs to God, to God. Don't steal God's portion. Don't keep it for yourself. Give God his portion. Give God the tithe. Be faithful to God. That's the first step to redeem unrighteous mammon. The second step, use the rest for good. You do that, there are going to be people in heaven to welcome you saying they're that they are there because of how you used your money. People who came to Christ because your money sent a missionary to their town. People that came to Christ because they came to a children's facility that your money helped build, and it changed the trajectory of their lives. People who learned about the saving grace of Christ because your money gave them a meal and a coat when they were in need. 
women who learned that God loved them because they went to a single mom's shelter that you supported. Remember this. God is the only one who can use unrighteous mammon and turn it into souls. Yeah. Think about that. Jesus turned water, something very common, into wine, and God can take unrighteous mammon and turn it into souls for eternity. But it won't happen. It won't happen if you just use all your money to satisfy your own needs and desires. Now, there are those who say, Dan, I don't even have enough of this unrighteous mammon to be listening to your sermon today. Well, if that's the way you think, I got a news for you. You never will have enough. You never will. Let's go back to what Jesus has to say about the story. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Some of the most generous people that I've ever known have been people who just didn't have very much, but they were quickly willing to share it with people. They'd open their home to people. They'd share meals with people. Whatever little they had, they shared it. It, 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 was, it, was, it was free to be given to others. And, um, but but don't, don't get me wrong, because I also know very well-off people, very well-off people who are likewise gen- generous. My point is that it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. We should be generous with what we have, and we should use it for good. If you can't be trusted with what you have now, don't expect God to give you more. It doesn't make sense, doesn't? If you are dishonest or unrighteous with what you have, your track record shows you will be dishonest if you have more. In a way, this kind of echoes the test that God laid out in, in the book of Malachi. In Malachi 3.10, when he said, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. In this case, in this story, this is the test that Jesus is saying. Show that you can be trusted with little and God will give you more. And if you're dishonest with a little, he won't. But I think the next verse is where it really gets kind of interesting here. Here we start to get the feeling that perhaps Jesus is talking about more than just money. Let's read Luke 16, the 11th verse now. He says, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? See, there are people who think that the greatest thing in the world would be just to be fabulously wealthy. Wow, just think of that. No worries, no concerns. Buy whatever I want to, whenever I want to, and and give it away or do whatever I want to. And um, The thing is, Jesus gives a glimpse here of what God thinks of worldly wealth. Now, now think about it. God owns everything, right? God owns everything. You can never get enough wealth to impress him. In fact, you know, we look in the book of Revelation, and, and we see that in heaven, in the new, in the new Jerusalem, we're going to walk 
on streets made out of gold. We're going to walk on it. You think God's impressed because you have a little gold? Oh, yeah, that's the stuff we're going to walk on, right? Not impressed. But you want to talk about true riches? Yeah. True riches are not financial. There are things in this life and things in the life to come that are far more valuable than money and certainly more valuable than worldly mammon. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records Jesus saying this. This is in Matthew 6, the 19th and 20th verses. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, there are riches in store for those who serve God that are eternal. And it's not gold, and it's not currency. When we use worldly wealth, mammon, for heavenly purposes, we are laying up treasures in heaven. And these are true riches. True riches. What are they? What are true riches? Well, I don't know. Um, I imagine some of them are things that I can't even imagine. When I think of treasure stored up in heaven, I, I know that there are things in heaven that are beyond my comprehension. All I know is the stuff I know in the world around me, and there are things in heaven, heavenly things, that I, don't, I can't even fathom how awesome and wonderful they are. But I do think that part of this, part of true riches is this. True riches are people. God can turn money into souls. Look around you. Souls, people, are the only things in this room that are going to last for eternity. Everything else is going to burn. It's all going to burn except souls. So how you use your worldly wealth can impact people's souls for eternity. Use it only for yourself, for your needs and your pleasure, or use it to bless others and to make the gospel known. Think about this statement. This is by Robert Morris. He said, heaven is being populated and hell is being plundered by our giving. Yeah. Wow. Think about that. Is that what you want to do with your money? Populate heaven and plunder hell? Man. Luke 16, 12. Jesus goes on, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Let's go back to our story. This story was about a steward or a manager, and the reason he was fired was that he was wasting his bosses or squandering his boss's possessions. Now, I think it's highly unlikely that he was wasting them because he was inept. Be because, you know, when, when he found himself out of a job, he proved to be pretty shrewd in trying to come up with a solution. Now, he wasn't stupid. He was dishonest. And Jesus called him out for it. But to the point of this verse, verse 12, the problem here was that he wasted possessions that didn't belong to him. 
He was hired to steward the master's possessions, and, but if he had owned them, he could have squandered everything. And he would have been considered a fool, right? But not a criminal. Such it is with us. I want you to consider this. Everything we have has been entrusted to us by God. Everything. And not just our stuff, our possessions. He's purchased our very selves. He has purchased us. So, how are you managing what God gave you? Are you faithful to first give the tithe back to him? Are you generous in blessing others with what you have? Or are you acting as if you owned everything? Are you acting like you deserve everything you have, that, that you earned it? I'm a self-made man. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Fill in the blank, whatever, whatever the phrase is. Do you look to God as your provider? Or do you look to your money, your job, your cleverness, your wisdom, yourself? Here's the thing. When we learn to truly look at ourselves as managers, not owners, of what God has blessed us with, and remember, we're, we're blessed to be a blessing, right? Okay? We can experience freedom from the spirit of mammon. We can avoid this temptation and trap that back to that verse Paul was talking to Timothy, the, the Paul was telling Timothy about back, back in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Ruin and destruction. Yeah, I'd like to avoid that. Let the hold of the spirit of mammon over us be broken. Let it be shattered. Realize that everything you have belongs to God, and you are responsible with how you manage it. Use it to serve and bless others and to make the gospel known. And rather than striving to get rich... And, and loving money and being eager to get it. Take the advice Paul gave Timothy. This is how he finished that passage. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, love, faith, endurance, and gentleness. And I think that ought to be enough to keep us busy for quite a while, don't you? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, I pray that right now you would speak to us about what this message is saying, not as a group, but as individuals. I want you to speak to my heart, Lord, and I want you to speak into everyone's heart in this room. Lord, I pray that we would realize that everything you've given us does not belong to us. We belong to you, Lord, and we are stewards we are managers of what you've given us. Help us to have that view of our things, of our finances, our stuff, our possessions. And Lord, help us to be obedient, to give you what belongs to you and to use the rest as much as we can for good.
for others, Lord. Help us. God, please show, talk to each one of us right now, Lord. Tell us things that we need to do in our lives to redeem unrighteous mammon, to break the spirit of mammon over us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if, 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 Lord, if, if money has some control over us, some hold over us that maybe we've maybe been oblivious to, I pray that you reveal it right now, Lord. In the name of Jesus, reveal it right now. We want to be faithful servants, Lord. We want to free ourselves from this bondage of money and, and things and possessions. And we want to, Lord, be able to pursue righteousness instead, to pursue godliness, to pursue faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. God, let this be what we hunger and thirst for. In Jesus' name, amen.